Hello and welcome to a VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access multimedia channel that brings you the latest research updates in hematological oncology. Today, we will be discussing updates in amyloidosis, including monoclonal spikes as a prognostic factor for transplantation outcomes, results of the CAR 101203 study, and real-world data from the EMN23 study. First up, Maury Gertz from the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine, Rochester, Minnesota, discusses research which has found a link between the presence of a measurable monoclonal spike before autologous stem cell transplantation and survival outcomes in light-chain amyloidosis patients. With the advent of novel agent induction therapy that usually combines a proteasome inhibitor and a immunomodulatory drug, the frequency of patients coming to transplant in complete response or very good partial response is quite substantial, upwards of 60%. Patients who have a measurable M spike, and the lower limit of measurement is usually 0.2 grams per deciliter, have probably demonstrated some element of therapy resistance and that it was not possible to eradicate the protein and put them into a VGPR or better pre-transplant. And what we found is that even though these patients get a deepening of response with transplant, being moved from a VGPR to a CR, a CR to a stringent CR, and stringent CR to an MRD negative stringent CR, these patients still do not have as good an outcome as those patients who come into transplant in very, very deep response. And we believe it's a reflection of the inherent biology of the myeloma at the time of diagnosis when we see these patients at the time of diagnosis. Patients who have biologically low proliferative index, favorable genetics, and chemotherapy sensitivity will achieve a VGPR or better before transplant. And when they don't achieve that, it says more about the inherent biology of their disease than it does about the technique of stem cell transplantation. And so we're well aware that although patients we believe who get transplant have a better outcome, there is no doubt in our mind that those patients that achieve a very deep response prior to transplant will end up doing better. Having said that, that does not mean that patients who have not achieved the VGPR at the end of a single induction should receive a second induction therapy prior to stem cell transplant in an effort to deepen the response. To answer that question, you really would require a prospective randomized trial. This is more prognostic and a reflection of the biology rather than a therapeutic guideline. So it's true that patients that don't achieve a VGPR pre-transplant don't do as well, but that doesn't mean that patients who don't achieve a VGPR should cross over to a different induction therapy or have intensified induction in an attempt to bring patients into a VGPR pre-transplant. We don't have the data to indicate that that guides therapy. It's simply a reflection of prognosis and what it means for the patient post-transplant in terms of the likelihood of having a very prolonged disease-free survival. 
Secondly, Jason Valent of the Torso Cancer Institute of the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio, discusses the results of the Phase 2 Kyle-101-203 study investigating the use of the monoclonal antibody therapy, Kyle-101, in combination with cyclophosphamide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone for light-chain amyloidosis. KL-101 is an investigational monoclonal antibody that is directed against amyloid fibrils with the hope that the antibody will promote monocyte and macrophage clearance of the amyloid fibrils from the affected organs in patients with AL amyloidosis. The two studies that were presented, um, one was a brief look at the efficacy as well as the safety of KL-101 when given in combination with Cyborg-D in AL amyloidosis patients. So the safety data was certainly spectacular. Uh, there did not seem to be any toxicity related to the KL-101 when given in combination with Cyborg-D. And that basically will allow now for the two phase three trials with KL-101 in combination with Cyborg-D to go on and in, pa in patients with um, significant cardiac amyloidosis. The other highlight of that study was we had a look at some of the efficacy single signals with KL-101 in particular with the ability to therapeutically clear amyloid fibrils and thus improve organ function. And certainly the data would support the activity of KL-101 in AL amyloidosis patients and improving their organ function. In the second study, there was a pharmacokinetic analysis of the drug looking at the various dose levels that were explored. And in the 1,000 milligram per meter squared dose, which was modeled as the most effective dose, it did prove to show better drug levels in patients who were treated with 1,000 milligram per meter squared dose. And so that, in combination with the safety, allowed for the selection of the 1,000 milligram per meter squared dose for the phase three trials in combination with Cyborg-D. Finally, Evstathios Kastritis from the University of Athens School of Medicine in Athens, Greece, outlines the results of the ongoing retrospective EMN23 study analyzing real-world efficacy outcomes for patients with light-chain amyloidosis. This is a retrospective uh, study in which we reviewed the uh, records, the medical records, of uh, almost 3,000 patients with AL amyloidosis who were diagnosed with this disease in the past um, 15, 16 years, from 2004 to 2018. This is a collaborative project, many different centers from 10, 11 different uh, European countries provided their data for these patients. And uh, uh, we were able to see the trends in the treatment of this disease during the course of this past 15, 16 years. Um, for example, it was very interesting to see how we moved from chemotherapy to bortezomib-based therapies, which seems that today is the most commonly used uh, treatments. Also, we were able to see what is the use of uh, autologous transplantation 
and what was the use of treatments at the time of relapse? So, because some of the patients, of course, they have hematologic relapse or organ progression and they need salvage therapy. So in this regard, we saw, for example, that uh, as we move uh, with the use of bortezomib from uh, to, to first line, we have less people, less patients who are using bortezomib for salvage therapy at the second line. Uh, about one third of the patients at the second line, they received imines, mostly lenalidomide or pomalidomide. And also in the past two years, uh, we have seen some use of uh, daratumumab. Uh, we were also able to observe that there was a significant improvement in the response rates, in the hematologic response rates, as we moved towards the use of bortezomib-based regimens. However, this improvement was not seen in patients with more advanced disease, such as patients with stage 3B disease. These improvements in the hematologic response rates were associated with uh, some improvement also in the overall survival of patients with stage 2 and stage 3A disease. Uh, patients with stage 1 disease had um, rather similar overall survival across these uh, time periods and with different primary therapies. These are the patients, of course, who have generally better prognosis. What was very disappointing is the fact that uh, patients with stage 3B disease, with more advanced disease, did not seem to have any significant uh, benefit over the last uh, years that we have moved to new uh, therapies. And also it was very disappointing to see that in general, we still delay in the diagnosis of these patients and the proportion of patients who present with very advanced disease and have very poor prognosis remains the same. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemonk and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with us. Visit VJHemonk.com for the latest updates from the experts themselves, as well as exclusive amyloidosis coverage. Be sure to subscribe to VJ Hemonk podcasts, which are available on Spotify, Apple and Podbean.